HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Gastronomica, an HRN podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Orwell. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our spring season begins with Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.4, now available online, and features conversations on food memory, community, equity, sweetness, and power. My guest this week is Lillian Say, joining us to discuss her work on confectionery in the Japanese Empire, which appears in a special section on the power of Japanese sweets and sweeteners in our winter issue. Thank you, Lillian, for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jackie. It's so honored to be here. So why don't we begin, if you can briefly share um, with listeners, first of all, where you're based, where you're calling in from, and also what you do. Yeah, so I'm actually calling from Taipei, Taiwan. I am a student at Brown University, and my research project is on the history of sugar and confectionery goods in the Japanese Empire. I just finished my research in Japan, which lasted over like one year and a few months. And I returned to my home hometown, Taiwan, and I'm now a visiting student at the uh, Institute of Modern History, Academia Seneca in Taipei. And so you had mentioned that you're you're based in history. Um, what 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 other fields do you situate your work in? And um, what briefly what does your work look at? What are you working on these days? 
Yeah, so um, I think I identify with multiple fields. Mostly, I will call myself a historian of the Japanese Empire, but also more broadly, history of commodities and business history, and a little bit more recently, history of science and technology. But besides history, like I'm also open, like interdisciplinary wise, like food studies and gender studies. So yeah, I've been recently writing,、uh, wrapping up my dissertation, and writing something about like technology. And food and like confectionery goods. Oh, congratulations! And I wanna, I wanna, I have some follow up questions about that、um, later, later on. But f- for the moment, before we dig into the article we're here to discuss today, the Empire's Sweet Tooth,、uh, can you set the stage for some of the context, especially the historical context, and share with our listeners where and when this particular story unfolds? So、um, this story mainly took place in pre-war Taiwan and Japan. Like the brief background was,、um, Japan modernized,、um, kind of became an empire in since late nineteenth century, and Taiwan was Japan's first colony, like、um, after the first Sino-Japanese War. And so, since eighteen ninety five to nineteen forty five, like Taiwan, Japan ruled Taiwan as a colony for over fifty years. And so, like、um, there has been a lot of contested discussions about the colonial legacies of Japan and Taiwan, and mostly including like economic and infrastructural like、uh, set. I mean, results of the colonialism. And one of the so there were mainly three. I mean. Just like very very vaguely, like I mean, there were many industries involved, but like the most major products were respectively sugar, camphor, and rice. And so there has been a lot written about sugar and colonialism in Taiwan. And in this article, I kind of step on that, but also want to go a bit further because there has been so much written about sugar and colonialism. But I'm always curious, like what happened to the sugar. So I focus a bit further on like their byproducts, like Western style confectionery. And so this article is basically discussing how like confectionery industry has anything to do with、um, Japan's colonial colonization of Taiwan. And in the article, I focus mainly on two case studies.、Um, the first one is、um, Nitaka Confectionery. So this company no longer exists, but it was founded by a Japanese businessman or like a settler or an immigrant from Japan to Taiwan, Taipei. And there, he founded his own confectionery companies, and they sold their goods from Taiwan to back to Japan, even to Manchuria or like Korea. And so I thought that was a very interesting case. And the second case is a more well-known company,、uh, Molinaga Confectionery, that is still very active today. But in the article, I tell a story that is little, is like lesser known to the public, is how they were involved with、uh, planting cocoa in Taichung in Taiwan, like East Coast Taiwan, in nineteen thirties. And this was the result of their collaboration with the Japanese colonial government in Taiwan, where they were.、Um, Uh, dislocating the indigenous people that there and like to in order to get their land to plant cocoa, and I think most people will be surprised. I'm also surprised when I learn the fact that right now the village there in Taichung is still named after Molinaga in Chinese is called like Senyongchun, like the、um, mainly Molinaga village. Yes, I think basically that's what the article is about. How did you get there? How did you? Find this story. I guess did you start at at the history of confectionery and sugar and sweetness, or were you? Was it something else that led you there? 
Yeah, so my interest in Japan actually began from Taiwan. I was raised, um, this is my home, I was raised in Taiwan, but actually I was not really interested in Taiwanese history until I was an undergraduate. And the reason for that was like um, in my undergraduate years, there were a lot of campus events about like Taiwanese history because it has been uh, repressed for a long time in my parents' generation by the um, nationalist like KMT government. So I think what I learned from those campus like activism and all those talks was like, oh, actually Taiwan has some interesting past and like it was not as dark and I mean, yeah, it was not as dark as people had thought, but like it's a bit more nuanced, more diverse. So I actually want to know more about Japan, like how did Japan colonized Taiwan? Like, I think that was my initial interest. So when I was um, applying for grad school, I really wanted to work on something that covers both Japan, Taiwan. And since I was so interested in food and commodity history, and I realized, yeah, like, yeah, there was so much people know a lot about sugar and a lot about the labor condition. It was very uh, exploitative and also about like the larger structure, but like we rarely talk about what happened after the sugar um, and how it actually affected people's lives. If, for example, if sugar was a commodity of empire, then when, where, where and when did this empire end or did it, did it even end? So I think that was um, my initial motive. And I also want to use like sugar as something very universal to kind of to write Taiwan into the historiography of the Japanese empire. And so the piece strikes to the heart of questions about empire and nation building and modernity and the role that food commodities and their consumption plays um, in what you call the, the um, civility and the, the civilizing process. And so the theme of equity and or inequity um, is central to histories of sugar production. And so listeners may be familiar with the work of Sidney Mintz, who you, whom you cite, um, on sweetness and power, the place of sugar in modern history. And in the article, you also mention the work of Yanai Taudo, who made the argument that Japan's sugar industry was, you quote, uh, deeply intertwined with unequal global order, end quote. So can you share more about this work and how these two scholars, the work of these two scholars informed your own? Yeah, so uh, Yanai Halatado, he was an economist, a Japanese economist, and he wrote uh, extent. He was very, very critical of the Japanese government, which was uh, a little bit rare at the time, but also very um, courageous to a certain extent. And so he wrote a book called Taiwan Under Japan's Imperialism. And um, in this book, he termed this, um, um, he coined this term called like sugar um, in imperialism. And it's interesting because like he wrote this book in 1929 and like his vision at the time was already pretty global so he was basically aware of the close or he was already aware of the close connection between sugar and industry and colonialism at the time and not just in east asia but he was he understood he knew about like what was happening in the americas and like all those sugar um, beast like development in europe and how like all them all them like were integrated to this like um, global capitalism so he was situating taiwan sugar industry under japanese colonialism in that context and his focus is more on the labor exploitation how like even though like japanese um 
official histories will say, oh, we modernized like the sugar industry in Taiwan. But he was saying like there was like a lot of exploitation and like some um, like how that contributes to like the class differences and how this um, this whole gap of economic um, class was uh, what actually made the colonialism last long. So I think he was writing compared to Mins, he was writing more from uh, the perspective of global capitalism and labor and rather than slavery. And for Mintz, of course, I also really um, inspired by his work. So he wrote about how sugar was added to coffee, chocolate and tea and how that affected people's lives. But um, when I was reading it, I was also very curious because the dietary habits in East Asia was pretty different compared to Europeans. And so I was curious what that I mean, what would what would happen if we bring this sweetness and power model to uh, the Japanese Empire to an East Asian Empire? Also, before I started grad school, I was working in the Japanese company, so I was also interested in some like um, other actors in the story because like for Yanai Hara and. Sentiments like their works are most mostly focusing more on like more structural and more macro perspective, and so I also want to add different actors um, into the story. So a question about about those different stakeholders. Then, when you set out to do this research, I guess I have a big question, which is, what did you look at, and what historical sources helped tell that story? And, and I guess my more specific question is thinking about business history, um, and it's it's often very you know, challenging um, for for historians sometimes in some cases to to get access to um, those histories. So, how did you piece together the history of these two companies? Do they have dedicated archives? Yeah. So I started this project during the pandemic, so I couldn't go to Japan, but I was very lucky because I could do research in Taiwan. But um, also, this is the first chapter I wrote, so I basically started with the most basic ones. So it's like the newspaper databases. So you can imagine this is like um, just browsing New York Times or Washington Post like 100 years ago. And I think it basically took me three months or maybe more just transcribing almost every um, newspaper entry relevant to this project like I use some keywords like sugar confectionery and also the, the companies I'm studying and it was difficult like but also like very rewarding of course I basically probably use only 10% of those you know newspaper entries I transcribed it but like they were really helpful to situate myself like to know like the background of the story and like who the actors were involved and look from there so after that I was very lucky because most um, pre-war primary sources in Taiwan were digitized. So I tried to diversify my sources to look at um, diaries. There, were, there was like a great diary and database, um, legal records, and some travelogues, advertisements, and some corporate publications that were open to the public. And I also really benefit a lot from previous studies in mostly in Taiwan and some public writings in Japan. So a lot has been written about these two companies, but not in English and like mostly not in an academic um, setting. So I'm trying to like I start from there and I, then I discover some new sources myself and then try to situate them in a larger framework. And also, I really I was very lucky. I have a, 
I have friends that help me a lot. Uh, for the, so for this article, Molinaga's involvement with the cocoa industry has a lot to do with the indigenous population, and indigenous history is something I'm not familiar with. But I was very lucky. I have a friend at UCL. She's now at UCL, and she's she was at the time working on a, a governmental project relevant to this whole story. So she also helped me a lot. And you mentioned in the article. I mean, there are images in the article.、Uh, listeners can can access the article through the show notes.、Um, there are images in the article、um, containing some ads and advertisements, and that obviously played a role in in your sources as well.、Uh, were there? Can you describe some of the ads? Were there any ads that are particularly powerful or memorable、um, for this particular story? Yeah, so I think I included. There were many interesting ads, and I think、um, I included one like in the article that was like the Taka Confectionery's product called like Camels. Like you can see like a, a woman,、um, kind of like a movie star, and then you can see all those small like、um, like candy boxes called like cam- literally Camel in Japanese. And I think this visual. Inclusion of like camels in the story was like really inspiring. Like, oh, I was curious. So like I was digging really into like what the camels mean to pre-modern Japan and found all those interesting connections. And also like something more recently, I think I included a picture of like Nitaka's like banana、um, banana caramel like in the article. But after this, I had the chance to see a real box. In another archive, and I realized that on the other side of the box, like there was actually a picture of the factory in in Taiwan. So I was like, oh, that was something interesting. Like the factory itself became part of the advertisement. Yeah. I have more questions about the banana caramels, but、uh, we're gonna take a short break, and we will be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills, combined with the freshest milk available, created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on HRN. I'm Jacqueline Rowell talking with Lillian Say about her latest article, "The Empire Sweet Tooth: The Making of Western-Style Confectionery in Colonial Taiwan," now available in Gastronomica 23.4. Lillian, I have a question about those banana caramels. I have lots of questions about the banana caramels, but first. Before we talk about some of the materiality of these commodities that you're studying.、Um, I just wanted to circle back on question about kind of the research and, and the archival process.、Uh, were there any challenges or surprises that you encountered、um, when you were doing the research for this article, and how did it shape your your experience? 
Yes, so for these two companies specifically, so Nitaka Confectionery, they no longer existed. Of course, there was like no archive of theirs. But I, what I did was like I tried to find as many things as I could, and there were a lot of some unexpected stuff. Um, so for example, I found stories about this person in like um, or this or the people in this company in like a business magazines in Taiwan. And then there were like a few articles and try to picture what exactly happened. And that was something ended up in the article of like they had a um, they had a fight with the sugar industry and they were like the confection makers. They had a huge fight with that. So I think it was like more. I think of course there were. Difficulties in studying a company no longer existed because I I had so many questions. I really wanted to know how they were involved with the government, but like since I could not get a straightforward answer to that, I tried to um, use whatever I can. For example, I luckily found like a book about like how a lot of people in a lot of Japanese, mostly Japanese people in Taiwan, they were contributing their um, calligraphy to the military government and like donated. Uh, funds for uh, military purposes, and this company was also part of them. So I was trying to. I mean, of course, I can't go uh, beyond my evidence, but that I, th I think what I did was like to show, at least to show like there were some connections there, and and we can leave the and that so and we can start things from there. And for Molinaga, like it's a huge company, and they have published many. Um, of their archival sources, and that was very very helpful. But I also had a huge challenge because um, when when I finally got into Japan, I tried to get access to their um, corporate archive, and I was rejected, um, which was uh, understand. I mean, which was very common. But I think I was very fortunate because like I was looking again, like looking at the. Um, existing scholarship, mostly not in English, and a lot of those Japanese articles they mention oh they got a lot of sources from this prefectural archive, which is like not you cannot find anything online. So I wrote to this library, and it turns out like they had like twenty boxes of primary sources that's like hugely relevant to this study, and so that was very very lucky. And also again, I cannot emphasize how lucky I am to have many friends. So I have. Uh, I had luckily had a friend um, who was a Japanese person, but he's also an independent scholar. Like he always, um, he's always in some kind of archive, some kind of old bookstore shop, and he always just send me anything relevant. So I also made a lot of those kind of friends on Twitter, and also sometimes find some uh, unexpected sources on Twitter. Not like citing Twitter, of course, but there were many um, anonymous like collectors that would share what they find, and if some I'm interested in something, I would like contact them and get. Get something from them. Yeah, there's kind of a, an ephemerality to um, what you're studying, in a sense, right? Um, I mean, there's there's a question of the preservation of the sources and the access to the sources, and then there's also the the material items themselves, the commodities themselves. So um, the the banana caramels. First, I'm wondering, can you describe what the banana caramels were? Um, because it seems that they're no longer available. So I guess my next question is. Um, What's it like to study the sweetness of food that can no longer be accessed? And are there any products like them on the market right now? So I think banana caramel I have not tasted by myself, but I think it is just more more likely like an addition of flavor to the original caramel. And of course, I think there are some 
I think they might be still. You can find something similar on the market now, but it's totally different. Like you know, like produced in different production line using different、uh, materials. But of course, the original taste was indeed lost. Um, actually, um, there was there has I mean there is a methodology to solve this problem called like making and knowing. I think it was proposed by a professor from Columbia University, and I luckily had a chance to take a class on based on this method at Brown University and taught by、um, Howard Cook and、um, Tara Nobodal, and it was a fascinating experience. Basically, we just tried to find all those old recipes and try to remake whatever we have. I think that's a very very cool idea and very very cool methodology. But when I was like、um, working on my research, I realized, oh, it's actually a bit challenging because most of the food I'm studying they were not handmade but like produced in industrialized factories. So it would be a bit more difficult for me to rebuild all the factory and try to see how they made it. So I think、um, what I did was like, of course, I. It would be great if I can adopt a more like anthropological pers-、um, method to、um, to this history of sweetness.、Um, but what I did was like I think I'm more interested in the social aspects of sweetness, like how people talked about it and how people thought about how to make this taste. And sometimes it's not just about the taste, but about the color, about the Smell and about how it was packaged, so I think these are like equally interesting aspects, like compared to how they actually taste. I mean, it's more like a complementary, like way to solve this issue. Of course, of course, and sweetness is. I mean, as your article shows, and I think as the as the section shows, you know, always socially and culturally produced, right? There,、um, there's a lot at play. What were some of the other candies that you came across?、Um, cocoa was. Was a big one. What what form did those those products take? What did they look like? Besides banana caramels, there were also like other、um, other types of flavor, like fruits flavor added to like caramels and chocolate, and also there were like a lot of. Actually, I think it's interesting because like there are so many names, like product names added to those goods. Like I'm not sometimes not really sure what they they were. Like there was a. I think it was a caramel name like Manna, like it's like I think it's a Christian thing. <laughs> so yeah, I think there were like、um, actually that there were like a lot of different types of confectionery out there. Also, like biscuits was considered as like confectionery goods at the time, and yeah, like different kind of flavor was added to it. Also, like mints as well. And all of these these Western style confectioneries they were produced within factories, as you mentioned. And technological advancement played a really big role in the expansion of the commercial network and the development of this particular industry、uh, at this time. So,、uh, can you give us an example of any new technologies that were really important? Important to creating these confectionery products, and what was it? What might it have been like to have been in a fact in a factory? Yeah, so this is actually what I'm writing now. This is one of my chapters and my last chapter I'm working on. So it's about the factory and this whole manufacturing process. So in I think from a retrospective perspective,、um, the confectionery factory was really like very high tech. I mean, at the the standard at the time, because like there were so many discussions about how. The entrepreneurs, the people in the company, they were so excited about getting the best and the latest like mechanics, mostly from 
from Western countries and how they, they have this very standardized process of like what to add first and then what to do next and then like different kinds of like very um, professional terms about how like grinding and like like conching like the cooked chocolate and things like that and also I think what really fascinated me was like uh, as I think I mentioned earlier like there were like a lot of usage of like color dyes and like fragrance and those were like new technology at, at the time but also what came along with them was like a lot of like panic about consuming these things to your body because there were like a lot of incidents of like poisoning food poisoning from like adding the wrong dyes and like fragrances i think this was really um i was really inspired by um ahisano's book uh, visualizing taste like how like taste was not really just about um, like taste but also like visual and olfactory like sensory experiences and also like um, another important factor in the factory was um, packaging like how I think there has been a lot of great works about how this uh, pack so-called like package um, pleasure was like important like how the package package was important for consumers to imagine a product and a brand so all these together were like very very interesting cases like in the factory and they also were really really careful and about the hygiene about of the environment like they want to let their consumers know like these products were made in a very safe and hygienic like Place, and so people wouldn't need to worry about like any concerns after eating their products and so what I find interesting was like um, there were actually a lot of already at the time already there were a lot of uh, representations and depictions of the factory to the public so it was never just a place for production how were they how are they shared with the public these depictions there was for example there was like manga like cart comic like molinaga the second company in the story they had they were very very rich and they had this uh, comic book for children and in that book they would always have all those like very illustrated uh like a manual of like how like caramels were made how chocolate were made and also like there were videos um pr videos shared with the public about like just not i think some were really with explanations like oh this was um the only um, high-tech machine in east asia and like we had this to make this candy and there were also some just showing you how this high-tech uh, machines were working and how those all those mostly female laborers were like wearing white um, uniforms were working there but of course um i think this is just one side like very selective and um actually the i believe the factories were also not a very good place to work at um i think i mentioned in this in my other article like there was like a proletariat writer who wrote a story about female workers in the caramel company and it was a very like high pressure and also like the salary was very low so i do believe that this kind of labor labor conditions was really hard at the time, which was very, very different from what the companies were trying to portray. Thanks, Elaine. So you mentioned that you're you're continuing writing on this topic, but and you also mentioned another article. Um, so I just wanted to share with readers um, of Gastronomica, they can access this article, The Empire Sweet Tooth, online through our website. But your other article, if they want to read more about your work, came out this fall in Gender and History. Is that right? I think it was last fall. I think or the or 2022, I think. <laughs> 2022, my, my apologies, 2022 in Gender and History, where you expand on, on the story. 
So before we wrap up, Lillian, is there anything more you'd like to share with listeners? Oh, I just think it's a great honor to publish with Gastronomica and be on your podcast. And I'm very excited to finish this project, which should be within less than a year. And I have some, uh, I think I will continue to work on food and history in the future. And I'll be interested to keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Lillian. And I look forward to reading your work when it comes out. Uh, So thank you for joining us, Lillian. Listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.4, now available online. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. We'll return in a couple weeks with more later in March from our next issue, 24. Point one out soon. Subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. 